0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. And uh, today we will come to uh, chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. We'll uh, read that shortly. I want to begin with a question. Have you ever received some bad information? Have you been misled and ended up being hurt through that process, I remember years ago when I was a little kid. my older brother, who was two years older than me, he and I were left unattended in the car. That was less strange back then. Uh, I was probably around six, maybe seven years old. Uh, my brother was uh, was like I said two years older. Uh, we were left in the car while one of our parents went into a store and uh, my older brother, Ed, had evidently recently discovered the cigarette lighter in our late 70s maroon Oldsmobile station wagon. Now, for some of you, I realize that perhaps an increasing number of you younger people may not even know what that is, but up until 1996, cars were made with cigarette lighters, and it was, it was kind of this little knob thing. In, in your cars now, there's often still a little 12 DC volt outlet, to power electronics. Well, that used to have a, a cigarette lighter in it, and, and you could push it in and it would heat up and, and you could light your cigarette if, if that was something you were looking to do. Well, my older brother had discovered the cigarette lighter in our old Oldsmobile, and like I said, we'd been left unattended uh, by one of our parents. And so he uh, he'd pushed it in and he held it up and he said, hey, Dennis, look at this. And uh, he held it up and the end of it was glowing red. Just heated up, and it was, it was pretty fascinating. I never s- s- had never seen that before. And, uh, and then a few seconds later, uh, after he'd, he'd put it back in the outlet, he held it up again, and he, he said, to Den- uh, said to me, hey, hey, Dennis, it's not hot anymore. Touch it. Well, I, I looked up, and, and it wasn't red anymore, and so uh, I thought he was right, and I, I did what he said to. I, I placed my right index finger firmly on the end of the cigarette lighter, That he was still holding. Needless to say, he was wrong. I'd been misled and and I burnt my finger something fierce. And not only was I left in tears, but I was also left with this circular burn pattern on the end of my finger that didn't leave me for a while. My brother gave me some bad information, some wrong information. He misled me. Now, I don't know to this day whether that was done on purpose or not. I suspect he didn't know either. But I was misled and I was hurt by what happened. This morning we come to the fourth of seven letters that we find in the book of Revelation. And what we'll discover in the letter we're going to look at today is that this church, the church in Thyatira, that there is someone in the church who is giving other believers bad information, who is misleading them. She is teaching them that something that is patently wrong is okay. And she's leading people horribly astray, and as we are about to discover, Jesus has some very strong words for this church in the city of Thyatira. Remember, this book, the book of Revelation, is called the Apocalypse, the unveiling. Uh, Through the passages, the pages of this book, Jesus pulls back the curtains, he lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really true, so that we can see what is really real. And what we discover is that there is more going on than we perceive with our physical eyes. Things are not as they seem. The revelation enables us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future, but it also allows us to see the present in light of the unseen realities even of the present. Things are not as they seem. Because of his faith in Jesus, John, one of Jesus' disciples, finds himself in exile 40 miles off the coast of present-day Turkey, on a volcanic lump of rock, the island of Patmos. And on the Lord's Day, as he is worshipping, suddenly he hears a voice behind him, a voice like a trumpet, and he turns to see the voice, and there he encounters Jesus, the same Jesus whom he'd followed, only now Jesus exalted and glorified before him. And Jesus speaks and commissions John and says, John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Faithfully, John records each message that Jesus has, and the rest of his vision, and he sends it to the seven churches scattered throughout the Roman province of Asia. The year is around 96 AD. We encounter these seven messages in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We've already explored the first three. Today we come to the fourth. In the first message, Jesus spoke to the church in Ephesus, and he commended them for a number of good things, their hard work, their perseverance, their orthodoxy. They held to the truth. But we discovered that that they no longer loved like they had loved in the beginning. That they were no longer characterized by the central thing that is to identify them as the people of God. That is love for one another. And so Jesus calls them to repent and to do the things they did at first. Uh, Two weeks ago we looked at the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna, where we found no word of rebuke only words of encouragement. Smyrna was already suffering, and Jesus tells them that things are about to get worse, that they're going to experience even greater pressure. But He calls them to not be afraid, to remain faithful. Last Sunday we looked at the third letter, the letter to the church in Pergamum, and there Jesus commended them for standing up in the face of external pressure to compromise, but we also recognize that the the external pressure was not all they faced. There was also an internal threat. Threat to compromise the truth. The primary issue in Pergamum, repeated in Thyatira, we'll look at shortly, uh, differs in some details and emphasis. But That third letter, they are called to the truth, to cling to the truth, that there is a battle going on for their minds, that Jesus cares about the truth, that Jesus is the truth. This morning we turn to the fourth letter, the longest of the letters, the letter to the church in Thyatira. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read Revelation chapter 2, verses 18-29. to To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service, and perseverance and that you are now doing more than you did at first nevertheless i have this against you you tolerate that woman jezebel who calls herself a prophet by her teaching she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols i have given her time to repent of her immorality but she is unwilling so i will i will cast her on a bed of suffering and i will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations that one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What I want to do with you in the time that we have together this morning is to ask three questions. First, what exactly is going on in the church in Thyatira? What's happening? Second question, where can we identify with the church in Thyatira? And third, what are we to do with Jesus' response to this church, to these believers in Thyatira? Question one, what exactly is happening? What what is going on? In in seeking to answer our first question, we need to first get a sense of this city. What, What do we know about Thyatira? Uh, the city of Thyatira was about 40 miles southeast from Pergamum. It was the next stop on the ancient Roman postal route, about halfway between Pergamum, where we were last week, and Sardis, where we will go to next week. Uh, these cities, the messages to them. Uh, of the seven specific uh, cities to whom Jesus has messages, to whom he sends messages through John, Thyatira is the least important. It was smaller, it was not uh, an important place politically. Uh, what we do know is that Thyatira was the center uh, for the worship of Apollo, the Greek god of the sun, uh, also called Helios. Apollo was thought to be the guardian of the city of Thyatira and the patron uh, god of many of the trade guilds in Thyatira, and I'll come back, I'm going to say more about those uh, shortly. Interestingly, uh, Thyat- uh, sorry, Apollo was said to be the son of Zeus, the the chief god in the Greek pantheon. And the people of Thyatira believed that the Roman emperor, who at, the time, at this time, when John writes, was Domitian, uh, they believed that the Roman emperor was, in fact, the incarnation of Apollo, the god of the sun. The emperor, Domitian, at this time, uh, called his own son the son of God, uh, thinking of himself as God. And uh, the coins that bear the image of Domitian's son Uh, bear an image of Him holding the seven stars in His hand, which is precisely what we saw in John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1. Daryl Johnson writes this, This might explain why, in this message, Jesus speaks of Himself as Son of God. It is the only place in the whole book of Revelation where He is spoken of as the Son. See, what we encounter throughout the Revelation is that over and over and over again, we encounter this tension between the claims of the empire and the claims of Christ, the claims of His church. Jesus is the Son of God, not Domitian, not the Son of Domitian. Now, back to Thyatira. Though though there is much that we don't know about this city, there's one matter of great significance that we do know. Thyatira was a relatively prosperous commercial city. Uh, imagine it or think of it as a blue collar town, as a center of manufacturing, a marketing hub in the Roman province of Asia. As such, it was the home to various, uh, numerous trade guilds. Was, a trade guild was a kind of a union. Uh, according to one source, these guilds, uh, there, there were guilds in the city of Thyatira for the following industries. For wool workers, for linen workers, for garment makers, for dyers, for leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave traders, shoemakers, bronze smiths. This was a commercial, industrial, blue-collar town filled with these trade guilds, various trade guilds for each different trade. Uh, one of the Apostle Paul's most famous converts is from the city of Thyatira. Uh, we know her from the book of Acts. Remember the woman named Lydia? Lydia? Paul encounters Lydia in the city of Philippi, but she is from Thyatira. Uh, We read part of her story in Acts 16, verse 13 and following. On the Sabbath, Luke writes this, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Lydia was a businesswoman from the city of Thyatira. Now, whether she had relocated to Philippi or was simply in Philippi on business, we know that she was a, a seller, a dealer of purple cloth. That would have been one of the industries. Textile industries were, uh, played a really important role in the in, in manufacturing uh, world of Thyatira. Now, why is this of, of great significance? Why does any of this matter? Well... Uh, because of the importance of trade guilds in in this kind of a setting. Here's what Darrell Johnson writes. He says that uh, that what this means, this city where where there's so many manufacturing industries and trade guilds for each one, he says this, no one could possibly make it financially in that city unless he was a member of one of those guilds. Not to join a trade guild meant risking financial loss. These guilds were central to the work in each of these industries. Now, you may be wondering, what's the big deal? What's what's the problem with uh, joining a trade guild? That's a very fair question. Let's explore the answer. Membership in a trade guild would have brought with it all the things that that participation entailed, the social activities, the the belonging, the relationships. And invariably, those relationships and those activities would have uh, included... Both idolatry, worship of idols, uh, idol feasts, and sexual morality that were a part of that. Here, Listen to what uh, William Barclay, how he describes membership in a trade guild. And this is a long quote, but I think it's worth hearing. William Barclay writes this. These trade guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and an offering to the gods. It was, in fact, the heathen grace before and after the meal. Could a Christian join in a ceremony like that? Still further, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. The token part of the animal would be offered on the altar. The meat of it would be given to the worshiper to make a feast for members of his trade guild. Could a Christian sit and eat meat which had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollo? or Artemis, or Thyreminus, uh, Th- the local god? Still further, this trade guild feast not infrequently degenerated into carousals where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the, acceptable, uh, the accepted thing? End quote. Uh, The matter of idolatry and sexual immorality was not limited clearly just to Thyatira. We encountered this uh, last week in the letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, Same issue, though some of the particulars are different. The emphasis is different. Uh, In Pergamum, Jesus rebukes the church because some of them hold to teaching of the Balaamites, teaching uh, that, of course, is a reference to an event that we read about back in 1 Kings chapter, or sorry, in the book of Numbers 22 and, uh, to 25, a passage that describes how at Balaam's uh, prompting, Balak, the king of Moab, entices the Israelites into idolatry and sexual immorality, and they fall under God's judgment. Now, I highlighted that last week, and and also the fact that in the ancient world, there is this uh, profound link between uh, worship of false gods, worship of idols, and sexual immorality. Those things go together hand in glove, and we saw that already in the Exodus event, in the golden calf event, in the life of Israel. I read this last week, and I want to do it again as a reminder, and for those who weren't with us, just to let you know, in Exodus 32, 6... Here's what we read. Uh, This is after Aaron had made the golden calf. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That is, this is an idol feast, a feast celebrating the golden calf. And when they rise up to indulge in revelry, that's actually referencing sexual play, sexual immorality. Those two things go hand in glove together in the ancient world. That's what happened here Amongst God's people. I also noticed last week that the same thing was going on in Corinth, decades before John has this vision of Christ, before he writes this book. And I want us to take a few minutes to look at the situation going on in Corinth. Paul is writing to Gentile believers who, prior to coming to Christ, were firmly part of the pagan world, the pagan environment in which uh, they were living. And that environment included uh, worship of idols, idol feasts, and the sexual immorality that went along with that, which is precisely why those two issues are such live issues in the church in Corinth. Paul is writing about these things to believers, people who put their faith in Jesus, but both sexual immorality and uh, meat sacrificed to idols are critical issues that he deals with in, in the, our 1 Corinthians. First, in regards to sexuality, the Corinthians had been shaped by the pagan thinking and perspective on, the, on, on sexuality. And here's their logic. In fact, in our first Corinthians, which is Paul's, Paul's second letter to them, it's the first that we have, Paul is actually responding to their letter. And so here's their logic. Paul is going to quote from their letter that he received. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6.13, you say, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both. So here's their logic. They're saying, hey, we have a stomach. It needs food. Uh, the food is for, stomach, uh, for the stomach. Stomach's for food. They go together. In the same way they are saying the body is for sex, sex is for the body. It's just, it's just the way it is. It goes together. It's not a big deal. But Paul actually is going to counter their logic and, and contradict it and say, no, 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 no. As we read on, he says, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The body's not just for sex and sex for the body. No, 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 no. It's not like the stomach and food. Our bodies are for the Lord, not for sexual immorality. Paul is countering that pagan view of sex as no big deal. It's just a physical thing. Second, in regards to idolatry, which of course would center on idol feasts and pagan uh, temples... Uh, and would include sexual morality, but, but so much more than that, the Corinthians believed that eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols uh, in these temples was no big deal. Now, to a point, Paul's going to agree, actually, if you look in 1 Corinthians 10.25, Paul says this, eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. Okay, so uh, animals would be sacrificed often in pagan temples, and there would be Leftover meat, and if there was leftover meat, that might be brought out to the market and sold. That was meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, essentially, a piece of meat is a piece of meat is a piece of meat. You can buy whatever in the marketplace and eat it. Don't worry about it. That's what he's saying. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. However, that is quite different from participating in the idol feasts in the temples. Uh, There, Paul has a radically different word for the Corinthians. He says this, chapter 10, verses 18 to 22. I want to read these few verses to you. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than He? He is challenging the Corinthians' idea that though it's fine to buy whatever meat in the marketplace and eat it without worrying about what's happened to that piece of meat, it's a piece of meat, buy it and eat it, but that does not mean they have freedom to go into pagan temples and participate in idol feasts and eat meat there as part of this, this, the table of, uh, of this idol feast. That's going on in the church amongst men and women who have put their faith in Jesus. These were live issues, and Paul addressed it. And he said, you need to think differently about these things. Now turning back to the church in Thyatira, I want to note this. There is much good that is going on in the life of this church. There are numerous things that Jesus commends them for, that He affirms their deeds, their love, their service, their perseverance. Jesus says those are great things. In fact, He says even more. Jesus indicates that even in those things, they are even growing commendably. He says, I know that you are now doing more than you did at first. He is affirming these very good things in their life together. Yet not all is well in this church. Jesus continues, nevertheless I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and eating of food sacrificed to idols. Here's what's going on in the church, in this church. Whereas in Pergamum, there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaamites, who hold to wrong teaching. Here in the church in Thyatira, there is a member of the church, a woman referenced called Jezebel, almost certainly that's not her real name, I'll come back to that. There's this woman who is a part of their church, part of their, their congregation, who is declaring in the name of Jesus. She is, She's speaking as a prophet. She calls herself a prophet. That means she's saying, thus saith the Lord. Jesus says, and then she is saying, she's declaring to members of the church that Jesus is good with them, carrying on participating in idol feasts and sexual immorality that goes with it. Uh, Just go ahead. God's good with this. See, she's not simply saying that it's okay. She is speaking in the name of Christ, declaring that Christ is good with this. Knock yourselves out. Feast away. Sleep around. Doesn't matter. Almost certainly, this woman's name is not actually Jezebel. That name is applied to her because she is playing the same role in her context as was played by the woman Jezebel that we read about in 1 Kings. Jezebel, of course, was the wife of King Ahab, one of Israel's most wicked kings. And she uh, urged him to bring in the worship of Baal. We read this in 1 Kings 21-25, There was never anyone like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, urged on by Jezebel, his wife. He behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites and the Lord, uh, like the Lord, uh, sorry, the Lord had driven out before Israel. And note this Jezebel urges the worship of Baal alongside the worship of Yahweh, not over against. She's saying we can do both. And she is speaking here. This woman in Thyatira is saying we can do both. We can follow Jesus and we can participate in idol feasts and sexual immorality. And God's good with that. Jesus says it's good. And that leads us to question number two. Where can we, where should we identify with the church in Thyatira? I will have to be a little more brief in answering the last two questions this morning. But our second question is, is, is where do we identify with this church in Thyatira? Where, as as a church in the 21st century, in the West, in Canada, here in Edmonton, uh, where do we identify with this church from the first century in the Roman province of Asia? I find it deeply alarming how often over my years as a pastor, in the context of the church, I have had people tell me that even though they are Christians and are not yet married, that they are engaged sexually, sleeping together. I have had people tell me that other believers have assured them that God is okay with that. God's okay with what they're doing. Increasingly today, the church is shifting away from the historic and biblical position with regards to same-sex relationships, affirming sexual expression of any kind, and saying that that God is good with that. The idea that that God has limited sexual expression to the context of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman seems so out-of-date culturally that if the church is going to be relevant, people argue we need to We need to make adjustments. We need to shift our position. Abstinence? Sexual restraint? Really? The spirit of Jezebel is alive in the church today. Encouraging compromise. Encouraging accommodation. After all, not being part of the guild will impact our social lives. It will impact our bottom line. Abstinence is so out of date. No, nobody waits until marriage. God won't really care. God's good with this. The message our culture loudly proclaims is that we need to be true to ourselves. Yet I want to remind you this morning that the message of Scripture, the message of Christ... Is not that we are to be true to ourselves, but that we are to die to self. We are to be conformed into the image of the Son. We are to look like Jesus. And please understand that, that this is not limited simply to the realm of our sexuality. There are voices that justify all manner of accommodation. I can be a Christian and be involved in some shady business things during the week. It's a cutthroat world, and, and I need to maintain a competitive edge. It's just the way the world is. It's the way wor- things work. Or perhaps it's in the area, area of honesty. Like, it, it, we need to cut corners and sometimes fudge things a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's the way the world works. Or perhaps it's in the area of our viewing or our listening choices. We are bombarded with temptation to accommodate. We are continually facing this challenge to accommodate our lives, our beliefs, to the sin of the world, to the beliefs of the world. We are regularly faced with that. To treat sin as if it is not Sin. To think that Jesus is somehow okay with these accommodations. To in fact call what is sin, righteousness. That's what was going on in Thyatira. And what we must understand is that Jesus is not okay with this. Jesus will not share us. He will not be worshipped alongside other gods. Accommodations such as we read about in this passage are examples of spiritual unfaithfulness, spiritual adultery. And God is a jealous God who calls us to total devotion to Him, to worship Him alone, to obey Him, to follow Him, to surrender to Him with no accommodation to the world. So question three. How are we to understand Jesus' response? How are we to respond to what He says? Let me remind you of Jesus' words, beginning in verse 21, speaking of Jezebel, this woman in the church in Thyatira. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, Then the churches will know that I am He who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. What are we to do with these sobering words? The exalted Jesus, whom John encounters, the exalted Jesus who speaks these messages, the exalted Jesus who speaks to us today through His Word, will not tolerate What he, with his eyes like blazing fire, see in the church in Thyatira. The text tells us that he has given Jezebel time to repent, but that she is unwilling to do so. So for her, judgment is about to fall. Christ says that he will cast her on a bed of suffering. Her place of sin will now be the place of judgment. And most likely what Christ is speaking of is temporal judgment that this woman would soon come down with some form of illness and death. He had given her time to repent, but she was unwilling. Notice that. Even for her, Christ had compassion. He gave her time to repent. But that time did not extend forever. And for her, the time of judgment has come. For others in the church, there is yet time. Christ calls them to repent. For potentially two groups, we can understand this: those who commit adultery with her, those who are her offspring, perhaps that's referencing those who are flirting with her t- as opposed to those who have wholesale bought it already. But even those who have been impacted, who are being impacted by her false teaching, by her lies, her, even they still have time to repent. Christ's desire is repentance, that we would come to Him in repentance and receive His grace, and receive His mercy. Jesus says, unless they repent, there is still time, but that time for them will also come to an end. Truth be told, we're not real comfortable with this vision of Jesus, are we? Way more comfortable with sort of this gentle picture of Jesus who, who seems not to get all that excited about sin, But hear this, there is only one Christ. There is only one Jesus. He is full of grace and full of mercy. It is is out of His great love for sinful, rebellious humanity that, that He came to lay down His life willingly, to bear the price for our sin, to suffer what you and I deserve because of our sin, because of our wickedness, because of the evil things that we do Jesus came out of love, out of compassion for us, to pursue us, to seek those who were lost. It's, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And through faith in Christ, we are clothed with His perfection, with His righteousness. Jesus is full of grace and full of mercy, and He's holy. He is holy, and He calls us to holiness. Our redemption, the redemption purchased with Christ's blood, is not merely a matter of you and I someday when we die going to heaven. It is about the restoration of all that was lost. We were created as His image bearers to reflect His likeness, to reflect His character, to live as His representatives that that all of creation would look to us as human beings and see and know what God is like, that we would reflect His love, that we would reflect His compassion, that we would reflect His grace, His mercy, His purity, His righteousness, His holiness. And though that has been lost through sin, though the image has been marred. Christ's redemptive work is about restoring all that was lost. It's not simply uh, so that when we die we go to heaven. No, it's restoring us to the image of Christ. And so, by the power of the Spirit, in light of the Gospel, through faith in Christ, we are to be changed more and more and more. And what we need to understand is that sin dehumanizes us. It makes us less who we were created to be that it is only through obedience to Christ, through being transformed into women and men who are holy, that we are becoming more and more human, that we are becoming who we were made to be, who Christ died to make us. And please hear this too. When we fall, when we sin, We will. It's not a free pass. doesn't mean sin isn't a big deal. It is. We just need to look to the cross to be reminded of that. But when we fall, when we sin, we can come to the throne of God's grace with great confidence. His grace is abundant. His mercy is lavished upon us. Our salvation rests not on our performance, but on what Christ has done. This is not about sinless perfection. This is not about us earning or meriting or even maintaining something. What this passage is about is us not accommodating with sin. Not excusing it. Not justifying it. And certainly not saying that what is sinful is righteousness. Which was happening in Thyatira. The Jesus of the Revelation is the same Jesus we worship today. And He It's the unchanging one. He would not tolerate this accommodation in Thyatira, and He will not accommodate it in our lives or in the church today. He is the one with eyes like blazing fire. That is the part of the description from John's vision that we encounter in this letter. Here's what Eugene Peterson writes. Fire penetrates and transforms. Christ's gaze penetrates and purifies. He doesn't look at us. He looks into us. We are not a spectacle to Christ. We are invaded by Him. Jesus looks into our hearts and our minds. He searches and knows our hearts and our minds. Not in order to fill us with fear, but in order to purify us. To shape us into women and men, young and old, who increasingly reflect the character of Jesus. He will not share us. He will not be worshipped alongside other gods. He longs for us. He longs for the fullness of our joy. He longs for the fullness of our satisfaction. He longs for our whole being. Because He knows that only in surrender to Him, only in worshipping Him, Only in being transformed by Him will we experience the joy and the satisfaction that He desires for us. The fullness of life. What is Jesus saying to you this morning? Are you accommodating sin in your life? Well, it's business and I have to be a bit cutthroat to stay ahead. You don't understand a person has to make some exceptions when it comes to being honest if you're going to make it in this world. It's just pornography. It doesn't hurt anybody. It's not really a big deal. It's not really greed. I'm just trying to ensure my financial security. But we love one another, and it feels so good that God must be okay with us sleeping together even though we're not married. Are you accommodating sin in your life? Are we as the church accommodating sin, saying that sin is in fact okay with God, that it's calling it righteousness? Jesus calls us to repentance this morning. He calls us to agree with His assessment of sin in your life and in mine, to turn from it, to cast ourselves at His throne of grace, to to be washed and to be made new, to be empowered by His Spirit, to walk in newness of life, to grow in holiness, that we might increasingly reflect Christ's image, that we might increasingly be truly human ones. Are you listening to voices that in the name of Jesus call sin righteousness? Where is the spirit of Jezebel seeking to seduce you or seduce me? I began this morning with a story about how I was misled by my older brother many years ago when we were kids. Look, it's not hot anymore. Touch it. Except it was. It was hot and it hurt me. The truth is, sin hurts Sin matters. In fact, sin is deadly. In James 1, we read this, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. To be sure, this message from Jesus to the church in Thyatira is a sobering message, yet it is not intended to leave us fearful or anxious. In my office... I have on the bulletin board above my desk a quote that I typed out. Something a friend of mine said to me years ago. A friend who, together with his wife, serve as missionaries in a closed Muslim country. And he said to me years ago, he said, Dennis, teach the Word, model how to live it, and repent when you don't. We will not always get it right. We will fall and scrape our spiritual knees. This is not ultimately about my performance for Jesus or yours. Yes, we are called to holiness. Yes, we are called to obey. Yes, we are by the power of the Spirit in light of what is true through the gospel. We are to pursue obedience to Christ in all things. But it is Christ's perfection that clothes us. Our standing before God is based in Christ's work. No, this passage is not about our performance ultimately. It is about the dangerous temptation that we face. The voices in our world, and God forbid, voices in the church, that call us to accommodate with sin. To say that sin is righteousness. To treat it lightly. May Christ guard us from ever conceding even an inch to the spirit of Jezebel. Whoever has ears Let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.